Well, if, uh, if this is your first time here at MCC, really glad that you're here. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor. And as Adam just mentioned, we, are, uh, we have been looking at the last few weeks at what the secret to the success of the early church was. And the reason we're talking about it is because uh, the early church, did, things were just happening fast, didn't even exist until the first chapter of Acts. And, uh, and so in the first chapter of Acts, 120 people meet to pray, the Holy Spirit shows up, and things just start banging. Before you know it, people are making decisions about who Jesus is going to be in their life, not just by the hundreds, but by the thousands. And, and the question is, why was that? What was happening? What was it that drew so many people to make such a life-changing decision in their own life, and then their life affected the lives around them, family and friends, people they lived near, people they worked with, went to school with, affected their lives so much that they made decisions about who Jesus was going to be in their life as well. And what we have found is that the early church, and by that I mean when the church first started, by the way, it was characterized. There were certain things that they did. And the book of Acts chapter 2 verse 42 tells us what it is. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So we've kind of been walking through each one of those. And uh, so for those of you who have never heard of the book of Acts before, it's the fifth book of the New Testament. The first four are the gospels and they tell the story from four different perspectives of Jesus's life. And then the fifth book of the Bible becomes a sort of a history book uh, of what happens after Jesus ascends to heaven. As a matter of fact, chapter one, Jesus ascends to heaven and then the church begins. And we've seen that they were devoted to the apostles teaching. And we talked about what that was and and how we do that today. And if you were here, you may remember I encouraged everyone to uh, jump on the YouVersion uh, Bible app on your smart device. They have reading programs. I want to encourage you to read a chapter of the Bible every day. If you've never done it before, begin with the Gospel of Luke and then read the book of Acts. It's sort of a part one, part two written by the same guy. and, And I think that will be very helpful to you. Then we talked about what fellowship is, this idea of community joint participation, uh, a sharing. Uh, If you want to boil it down to another word that we use a lot today, it's just, it's about relationships. And so small groups here at MCC help facilitate that. And I want to encourage you, if you're not part of one, you can sign up out in the lobby today. You can see Adam uh, Leopard, who will be floating around out there today as well. I want to encourage you to be part of one. Last week, we talked about the breaking of bread, or as we call it commonly here, uh, communion. When we remember the cross and not just we kind of go back to it and we keep pulling our lives back to that moment and how it's made a difference in our lives and why that is vital to keep remembering that moment. Why is that so important to us as followers of Jesus? And so we encourage you, listen, if you've missed any of those messages, I want to encourage you to go to our website. You can find those there. But today we're going to be talking about prayer. In Acts chapter 1, so the very first chapter of Acts, verse 14, this is what it says about the believers. It says they all joined together constantly in prayer. And I want to be real clear. I want to make sure you don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about they got together and recited a prayer, right? This wasn't, now I lay me down to sleep, the preacher's dry, the subject's deep, right? It says, if he should stop before I wake, poke my side, for goodness sake. That's not, it's not that kind of prayer. You may pray that on Sunday mornings, but it's not that kind of prayer. I, I found another one. Dear God, my prayer for 2017 is a fat bank account and a thin body 
Please don't mix those up like you did last year, right? Uh, It's not a prayer like that. That's not what we're talking about. If we're going to be a church like the church in the book of Acts, prayer must be a part of our culture. It must be part of our DNA woven through every piece of who we are and everything we do. In a word, we need to be, as it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, devoted. Not just that we say prayers. We're actually devoted to it. Now, why is that so, why is that so important? What does that even what does that mean to say that prayer is going to be a fundamental part of who we are as the church? Let me ask you a couple other ways. Why does our praise team, so when they come together on Sunday morning, they have rehearsal during the week, they come together on Sunday morning, and they prepare again for uh, this morning, and when they're done getting ready, they stop, they spread themselves around this room, different people go to different parts of this room, and they begin to pray for you before you come in. Why do they do that? Why do our greeters out in the lobby, uh, before services ever start, before anyone ever gets here, they circle up in our lobby And they pray for everyone who's going to walk through the doors of our building this morning. Why did did they do that? Why do our leaders, when they meet, they don't pray just for what God is already doing here. They pray about what God's going to be doing here through the rest of this year, into next year, 2018. This past week, our staff, uh, we did our annual staff retreat, but we held it in town this year. And as part of it, because we, we rarely are here in town for this retreat, we actually got to do a service project for a family, a couple of elderly ladies here in our area. We got to do a project with them. And afterwards, we prayed with them. We prayed for them. Why did we do that? My nephew called me last night. He's law enforcement down in Texas. He is in the northeast uh, part of Texas. And so uh, they have not been affected by the hurricane as the rest of Texas has been just below them. But they're being called down to serve down there. And I asked him what they were going to be doing. He said their task as they leave this next week is going to be body recovery. Why are we praying for them? What do we think we're doing when we do that? Why, why are we praying for the safety of those who are, are there in Texas, for those who are going to serve? Why are you praying for them? Why have you prayed for people in Texas over the last couple of weeks? This is on your notes. It says, if the church of Jesus Christ is ever to march forward victoriously, she must march forward on her knees. To which I would ask, do you believe that? I mean, that's a great quote, but, but do you believe that? Do you you pray like that? Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to land. If you've got your Bibles with you, open up to Acts 4. If you've got your smart device, go to the Bible app, version. You'll find Acts 4 there. Or if you go to the events section, you'll find our notes for this morning, which includes the verses from Acts chapter 4. But we're going to look at a time when Peter and John, who are two followers of Jesus, two leaders in the early church, they've been arrested by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish ruling council of their day. And you may be wondering to yourself, oh, great, what are these guys, what did they do? We, you know, why were they arrested? Was it because they incited a riot? Nope, that's not why they were. Was it because they stole something from the temple? No, that is not why they were, they were arrested. You know why they were arrested? In Acts chapter 4, you read that they were arrested for healing a crippled man and then teaching about Jesus. So they healed a crippled man, they taught about Jesus, and then they were, they, they were thrown in jail. The guards threw them in jail overnight, brought them before the council the next morning. And in chapter 4, verse 10, Peter 
tells them that this guy that they've healed, they've done it in the name of Jesus. The same guy you crucified not long ago, God raised him from the dead. And it's because of this man, Jesus, that he stands before you healed now. And then in just two verses later, he says, as a matter of fact, his name is so powerful. Salvation is found in, there's no other name where you're going to find salvation other than in Jesus. And then look at verse 13. It says, when they saw, these are the leaders, the religious leaders, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled. They were just ordinary men, and they were astonished because they couldn't figure out, how is all this happening through two guys like this? And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So they realized that Peter and John, they're looking at them. They know who they are. These guys aren't that sharp. How did this happen through them? That's what the Bible says. And then something dramatic has happened to these guys. That's right. These are two of the guys that were hanging out with Jesus. And he has this ability. When you you are with him over time, he has this ability to change people. So the religious leaders put their heads together. They decide they can't dispute the fact that an incredible miracle has been performed in front of them. However, they can't just let this teaching spread. I mean, if you do something like that, you let the teaching spread, pretty soon all the crippled people are going to be healed. Then what are we going to do? And so they commanded Peter and John not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. In verses 19 and 20, Peter and John say, which is right in God's eyes? Do you think we ought to listen to you or should we listen to him? We'll let you judge that. But for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, Peter looked him in the eye and he said, we are disinclined to acquiesce to your request. Frustrated because the religious leaders recognized that that was a quote from the original Pirates of the Caribbean, right? (laughs) They made a few more threats and then they let them go. Verses 23 and 24 says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. They reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And they said, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So here's the thing. They go back to their own people. In other words, they go back to the the church, their people is the church. And what was the immediate response of the church? They prayed. Think about it. They didn't organize a campaign against the Sanhedrin. They didn't threaten to boycott the temple. They didn't sit around whining about how they were misunderstood and nobody likes us. They, they didn't do any of those things. They got together and they prayed. It wasn't a last resort. First order of business for the church when threatened was to pray. Here's the question. What did they pray for? Put yourself in their shoes. The government that has killed Jesus, murdered him on a cross, has now threatened to kill you. So you know the threat is real. They've already done it once. They'll do it again. Let's make it maybe a little bit more in our day. Suppose for some reason our national government has outlawed Christianity and then they executed Billy Graham just to show you that they mean business. And then our local government here in Dayton arrests Adam Leppard, who you saw in the video. That's our discipleship pastor. They arrest him, and then they arrest me, and they command us to disband MCC. And we are not to teach in the name of Jesus here uh, anymore. And then they let us go. And so we come back, we all meet here, and we pray. What do we pray for? That's not really a rhetorical question. I want you to think about that. 
What, what would you be praying? What would your specific prayer be? Because hopefully you would thank God that we'd been released. And we might all be praying for the situation to become more peaceful, maybe to protect, that God would protect the church from the antagonistic government officials here in Dayton. We might ask for the, for pers- the persecution to cease. We might even pray that our government, there's like a, a, a peaceful coup that would come and replace the current government that was threatening us. Maybe we would pray that our own lives would be less stressful because just those are the sort of things that make sense to me. But under the exact same circumstances, the prayer of the early church, we, we looked at the beginning of it just a moment ago, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. This is what they prayed. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. This is King David in the Old Testament who said, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So did you notice what they prayed for? Did you notice what they didn't pray for? Right? They didn't ask God to remove the obstacles they were facing. There's not one word about ending the persecution in in that prayer or replacing a hostile government or making the church's job easier. They didn't ask God to make their lives more comfortable at all. Instead, they asked God to make them more effective at what got them in trouble in the first place. They asked God to empower them to keep making a difference despite the threats that they were making. And the type of prayer, uh, when we see what they prayed, we find out why it's important for us to devote ourselves to prayer. Because this is the type of prayer we need to be praying. Because when we do, when we devote ourselves to that kind of prayer, we are reminded of who God is, his sovereignty. Big word. We don't use it very often. I'll give you a moment to write that down. I want you to get it right. It's the first thing they pray. It's in the middle of verse 24. Sovereign Lord, right? In other words, King Master. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. When we pray, it is important to remember that God is sovereign. The question is, why is it important to remember that? Is it because God has this a form of divine Uh, Alzheimer's disease. He doesn't remember who he is. He needs us to remind him. Or is that he needs us to remember, to remind ourselves who he is. In case you need reminded of how big he is, the prophet Isaiah wrote this, who has measured the heavens in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? The prophet Jeremiah, Old Testament still says this, Ah, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. I love this. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you, 
right? If you're wondering how strong he is, Psalm 89 says, the heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? And then I love the image of this next verse. In the council of the holy ones. So whatever you picture is going on in heaven, in the council of the holy ones in heaven, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty. Your faithfulness surrounds you, in case you're wondering how big he is. Because if not, we're liable to pray like the little girl who was living in California. They were getting ready to move to Ohio. And so the night before the move, she's on her knees by her bed. Her mom and dad are with her. She prays, God bless mommy, God bless daddy, God bless Craig and Susan and Jeremy. And, oh, yeah, God, I guess this is goodbye. We're moving to Cleveland. I mean, I just want to say, in case you're wondering, God's still watching, even if you live in Cleveland, right? Uh, Do you know why it's important for us to remind ourselves who God is? It's because if we don't remind ourselves, we will act. We will live as if he isn't who he is. When we pray, we are addressing the almighty creator of heaven and earth. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere all the time. He's always with you. He's bigger than any problem, bigger than any obstacle, and he's bigger than any challenge. When Chuck Colson was writing his book, The Body, he wrote this. We as a church pray not because it's the key to something like healing the sick or church growth or even revival. We pray because God is God. And he is worthy of our total obedience and reverence. In verse 26, the early church said, The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. (laughs) They actually think that by coming together, they can overpower God. But you pick up in verse 27, they, they try, they overpower Jesus and crucify him as if he is a common criminal. And come Friday... They've hung him on a cross. He has died, and they think they've won. They think they've beat him. Verse 28 says that God and his sovereignty had this already. It was all planned out. This was his plan from the beginning. Herod and Pilate were just pawns in a chess set, in a chess match that he created and designed. They were playing right into his hands. But I want you to notice right at the very, from the very beginning of this prayer, they begin with this acknowledgement, and it's in your notes, I want to make sure you got it, that God is in control. And I wonder if the reason why we're maybe not as steadfast in prayer as, as, as the early church, at times at least, is because we don't think we need to be. We think we've got this, we can do it on our own. Is your natural response, let me ask this, is your natural response when something happens, is your natural response to say, what should I do about this? Or is your natural response, God, what do you want to do about this? Or sometimes we pray as if we're giving God instructions instead of asking for his instructions in our lives. Or we pray as if we're trying to get our will done in heaven as opposed to his will done here on earth, right? Listen, other times we pray as if we aren't even sure or whether or not God is even listening. And if he is, can he give us an answer on this thing? Ron Kincaid in his article called Five Reasons We Don't Pray says that one of the five is that we don't recognize that God is our only hope. He writes, we embrace the misguided notion that we can handle most problems and need God only in emergencies. 
We try everyone and everything else before admitting that God is our only hope. But when we devote ourselves to prayer, we recognize that God is sovereign and that everything rests in his hands. Whether we like the way it's going or not, it rests in his hands. Which, by the way, leads into what happens next when we devote ourselves to prayer like that. We, we un, God unleashes his courage and his strength in our lives. He just unleashes that. It's verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They, they prayed, God, enable us, strengthen us to be more effective. I wonder how many times we pray for God to meet a need or send a blessing or reach a lost person instead of praying for God to empower us to meet a need or be a blessing in someone else's life <laughs> or to reach the lost person that is around us. I like this quote. It should be on your notes. Prayer is not a way of getting what we want, but the way to become who God wants us to be. I just, but I don't know about you. I read this and I think, why didn't the early Christians ask God to remove the obstacles? Because instead they asked God to use them to make a difference in spite of those obstacles. And then they continued in verse 30, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They, they wanted God to be so obvious. Do you remember why this whole mess starts? Peter and John healed this crippled guy in the power and the name of Jesus. And instead of wanting God to just sort of ratchet it down a little bit so we can sort of calm the whole situation down, they're praying that God will turn up the heat so that nobody misses what's going on, not just for the sake of those who need healed, but for this, as a sign for those who don't even believe yet. Henry Blackaby wrote a devotional called Experiencing God. Some of us have read it. I've read it. I encourage and recommend it to you because part of what it teaches is that God is at work already around us. He's already there doing something. Our task is to see where he is and join him in what he's already doing. Blackaby wrote this. He said, don't ask God to bless your church. Ask God to use your church. The blessing is the byproduct of obeying and experiencing God. He's saying that as we pray for the church, we should be asking God to lead us in a way of obedience so that he, we can be part of him doing something dramatic to carry out his will in the world around us. And look what happened when the early church prayed that. After, that, after they prayed, the place where they were, they were meeting was what? Shaken. Think about that. The whole building shook. The ground shook. Everything shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Which just reminds us when we devote ourselves to prayer, part of what happens is God unleashes the power of his spirit through us. It's because we're asking for that. It's what he wants to do, but he's waiting for us to want to have it happen. He didn't remove the obstacles. He didn't soften the hearts of the chief priests and the religious leaders. He didn't promise there wouldn't be any more persecution. Instead of changing the circumstances, what did he change? He changed the church. He filled them with boldness. He filled them with power through his Holy Spirit. And that boldness was contagious. As the church, we need to be asking God for the wisdom to know what's right, for the strength to carry it out, and for the courage to press on no matter what. And I've got to tell you, for the most part, when it comes to the church, we know what's right. We know what we should be doing. We need to ask for the courage 
to do the right thing, the strength to carry it out and the courage to press on regardless of the outcome of us doing the right thing. It's what happens when we as the church are devoted to prayer with God. Check out the last quote. It says, prayer is so simple. It's like quietly opening a door and slipping into the very presence of God. Is it any wonder that we walk away changed when we devote ourselves to prayer? Not so God will change the world around us. That's not what we're praying for. We're praying that he'll change us and then that he will use us to affect change in the world. That's why this time that we come to, this time of communion is so important to us. We hold the emblems in our hands that remind us of Jesus' body that was broken for us and his blood that was spilled for us that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might be something more because of that. Not perfect, not sinless, but changed. Because when we hold these emblems, when we remember what God has done in our lives. And when we devote ourselves to this speaking with him in such a way that we ask him to change us so that we might affect change in the world on his behalf, when we do that, God begins to change the world. But it begins by remembering what he's done in us so that we can ask him to use us to allow that to happen in someone else's life. So as we... As we prepare now to remember what Jesus has done for us and the difference it has made in our lives, our prayer is that he'll use us as he fills us. Let's go to him. God, thank you for what you have done in our lives. Because what we're about to do doesn't merely remember a Bible story. It doesn't remember just something that happened in history we are drawn back to a moment in time when your son hung between heaven and earth because he was bridging the gap between your throne and our lives God this moment reminds us who we belong to reminds us that we can have a second chance every time we need one that you never give up on us and that you love us so much. And God, that's really the message the world needs to hear around us, that you love them and that you have not given up on them and you will forgive them as often as they need it. So God, as we hold these emblems, may we remember it starts with us and our relationship, our friendship, our walking with you every day. And so, God, may these emblems, may this moment be holy before you as it draws us back to the cross and back to you and what you have done in our lives. Thank you, sovereign God. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who gave his life for ours. Amen.